you're about to listen to episode four of What Are You Making Me Watch? In it, there will be spoilers for episode four of Band of Brothers, Replacements. You have been warned. Welcome to this week's episode of What Are You Making Me Watch? I'm Paul Kirkley. And I'm Hannah Dunleavy. And this week we're going to be talking about episode four of Band of Brothers, Replacements, which leads us to a bit of chat about work experience kids, mosquito bites and ABBA, obviously. Obviously. Obvs. I mean, it seems like a really clear <laughs> leap between those things. <laughs> it's obvious, perfectly obvious to anyone. <laughs> I've got some actual women's history coming Woo-hoo! your way. And I talked to James Holland about what went so wrong with Operation Market Garden. He's got a book out, James Holland. He has, yeah. Couldn't put it down, said the Times of London. I'm sure it's really good, but I'm currently reading a book that James Holland advised that I read. Oh, Peggy. We've been invaded by a cat. Perhaps we should uh, just go straight to bed. <laughs> OK, let's, let's roll. So... Quick plot summary for episode four, Replacements and Easy Company are back on the planes, this time as part of the ultimately unsuccessful Operation Market Garden, which sounds to me a little bit like loads of civil servants going out looking where to place Stevenage, doesn't it? (laughs) It's a ridiculously genteel name for what, uh, spoiler alert, turns out to be a bloodbath, isn't it? Like calling it Operation Titchmarsh. (laughs) (laughs) Operation Nice Cup of Tea. (laughs) They get a rapturous reception in Eindhoven, but things start to go wrong pretty quickly and they find themselves in retreat with two of their big beasts, Sergeant Randleman and Lieutenant Compton, injured. There's a moment in this when they get back on the trucks after they've fled Noin and they look absolutely shell-shocked in it, like absolutely stunned by what they've just seen. And that's the first time we've seen Easy Company look like that, isn't it? Yeah, they've got a bit of a thousand-yard stare going on, haven't they? Because it it didn't go so well, did it? I think that's fair to say. (laughs) Because Operation Market Garden... Quite a, a famous operation, of course. And this this is another episode, like episode two, that takes place sort of nearby a very famous film. So whereas episode two was um, Saving Private Ryan, obviously, this one's sort of down the road a bit from a bridge too far. Yeah, yes, indeed. And if the camera kept panning long enough, it would come across uh, Sean Connery talking about oh, how all his plans have been scuppered. <laughs> it's interesting, though, that the episode isn't called market garden is called replacements because that also fills the center of this the arrival of fresh meat and fresh meat i don't think has ever felt quite so apt a term i was going to call them the new kids on the block but then donnie Wahlberg's already there (laughs) (laughs) they're very green aren't they the new recruits i've had work experience kids that i've just been like oh for the love of god that's not how you do that and every job you show them how to do takes longer it would have for you to do it yourself. I mean, we've worked in newspaper offices. It's a nightmare. But on the other hand, those work experience pupils weren't being expected to be the editor of the paper, which is what's (laughs) happening here. It's new guys being slung into the theatre of war. Work experience kids probably are being expected to be the editor of the paper now. (laughs) They are now, yeah. (laughs) You've worked in newspapers recently. But um, yes, you're right. They're being uh, slung in at the deep end and... um, I think there's quite a touching bit where where they say, you know, I don't I don't want to get to know them because they're basically going to die. So I don't want to be their friends, these kids, because they'll be dead. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's really tragic. That's the talking heads that say that. Are you starting to have an idea of who you think the talking heads might be or are you trying not to think about it in, and not spoiler it for yourself? I don't even know who the people in the show are. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've been saying this every single week, so I've now started watching it with um, the IMDB page open next to me, which I, in some ways I do genuinely think is a slight failure of storytelling because I understand that they need to do it because it is a true story. Um, but I, I, I do feel like we never sometimes quite spend enough time with each of the characters to get to know them. So this week, for example, one major plot strand followed Michael Cudlitz, the Sergeant Ball Randleman. Mm-hmm. Hat tip to IMDb. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so is this the first time he's been in it or was he in the other episodes? I honestly can't tell you. Oh, he has been in it previously, but only as a, a you know, a secondary. Like he hasn't been... I can't think of anything especially significant that he does right, in it. Okay, so I wasn't listening, but of course it's compounded by the fact that everyone wears the same clothes. Yeah, and I, I, I do know that that's how the army works. So don't <laughs> yeah. write in. It's the literal definition <laughs> of uniform. <laughs> yeah, um, and they've all got the regulation military haircut. So I've only got the bit between the chin and the kind of eyebrows to yeah. work from. So yeah, so so working out who they are. 70 years later, that's going to be the next uh, challenge. Yeah. I think the Bull Randleman story is really interesting in this because two things happen. You get the reaction of of them to, to, to what is a big loss because he is, and it is stated in this, like a significant soldier. But also you get to see him through the eyes of some civilians and the absolute horror they have when he kills that German. And to him, yeah. if going back to Spears' speech, it's so commonplace. It's just what he's there to do. Yeah, he just bayonets him, doesn't yeah. he, repeatedly. And they are pretty horrified, as you say. I did also have to say that with, with the bull chomping away on his cigar the whole time and Popeye busting himself out of the hospital. I feel like we're back at the 18. <laughs> <laughs> Except this is like, I hate it when a plan goes to total shit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, Popeye's bum has barely healed. And then Buck Compton gets peppered in the backside with something. Yeah. yeah. And Pop- Popeye says, um, I can't sit down, but I'm fine to jump out of a plane. <laughs> <laughs> Later on in one of our later episodes, I have an exercise planned in which I shoot you in the arse with a okay. rifle and you tell everyone how much it hurts. OK, well, I look forward to that. But then you'll push me out of a plane. <laughs> what I've got to say about Bull is that he gets a bit of tank in his back and it's right at the spot that he can't do anything about. Oh, and yeah. again, in empathy, I thought about when I got bitten by a mosquito in lockdown and I lived in a house by myself. And it was right at that bit there. I had to fashion a device in which to, like, just scratch at it. There's nothing worse than when you get an itch or a bit of tank shrapnel right there. I think we can all agree they are exactly the same thing. The same two, thing, yeah, those two between things. the shoulder blades. Nightmare. Webster says, when he goes into the town, oh, Vincent van Gogh. He says go, but we would say yeah. goff. Vincent van Gogh gave us from Noin. And it then becomes really stripped out of colour. That whole scene is really grey. And and most of Van Gogh's famous stuff is just stuff that's really vibrant with colour. So I, I, I don't know if that was an active choice. but Well, c- can we talk about the colour? Yeah. Because it's funny you should say that, because I, I thought the grading on this episode was, was really interesting. Because the colour palette is really muted mm. through most of it. It's almost like a, a sepia photograph that's been artificially recoloured, which I think is a really interesting 
choice. Uh, it's not a, quite everything was in black and white back then, but it's kind of leaning that way, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure why why they'd done it, but it's re- I think it's really effective. And the director, David Nutter, later became one of the linchpins of Game of Thrones, of course, and um, and, and he directed the infamous Red Wedding, oh, which makes he? yeah makes even Operation Market Garden look <laughs> like a stroll in the park, doesn't it? But yeah, the, the colour is interesting, isn't it? It is it's just very very muted, which I think works. Yeah, and I, I, I might go back and look at the other episodes. I think maybe they're all a bit like that, but this this one struck me as particularly true. Um, and also, I did a bit of <laughs> I did a bit of research. I mean, I looked at Wikipedia <laughs> for about ten. That's seconds. what passes for research nowadays. Exactly, and um, Van Gogh wasn't born there. That that's wrong. But he did live there for a couple of years. Great. So they're right. That's what a college education gets you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that is interesting, and we can talk about that coming up. Webster kind of creates a culture clash because he is, I suppose, officer material, but has just signed up to be one of the grunts and, yeah. of course, has been to Harvard. Um, and there is an interesting sort of clash of cultures later coming yeah. up with him. Oh, cool. Would you like a little quiz? Always. Do you remember when you said you were going to do a... Um, sting a little theme tune for it every week and then you never bothered oh yeah i'm so sorry what was it like uh quiz of the week <laughs> no but week. carry on doing that it's hannah's quiz of the week <laughs> great okay only what, one question what? this week okay which scott who was awarded the inaugural bafta rising star award has a short shelf Oh, I've just realised I've written has a short shelf life and that seems really, really harsh. I'm going to say dies heroically in this episode. That would be uh, James McAvoy. James McAvoy, indeed. Who looks about 13. Doesn't he just? <laughs> and as you say, he didn't last very long. He didn't have much luck in the Second World War because if I recall, he also died of septicemia at Dunkirk in Atonement. Oh, did he? So, yeah, so um, he's not had a good war, as they say. I gave up reading Atonement, and it's very rare I give up reading a book. Uh, well, I, I just watched the film. We got a little dash of Sobel back this week. Yes. Only yeah. very briefly. He's now the supply guy. He's in charge of motorbikes and paperclips, it appears. Well, you're right. It comes back. It doesn't really do anything. It's like the uh, original Friends reunion. <laughs> <laughs> Without James Corden, obviously. But I won't be surprised if he turns up. So he didn't do an awful lot, but... I'd, it, Will we? Well, no, don't spoil me. I don't know if this. It, it can't have just brought him back for that, can they? To, to mention a motorbike. Oh, I think it, it's to rub his nose in it that he's not. He's, you know, here's what you could have won if you hadn't oh, been I an see. Egypt. Um, there is one moment in this that no matter how many times that I've seen this, I still go, oh shit, every time it happens. And that's when Nixon gets shot in the helmet. Oh, God. Yeah. That really sort of drives home the sort of senselessness of it or the immediacy of it was that if that had killed him like he was halfway through a sentence and he just would have gone down exactly well he's not the first person to be shot in the helmet in this uh, (laughs) (laughs) in this show but but yes this was his actual helmet um can i ask you a question yes um you mentioned a few episodes back that there was some grumbling at at a time about the depiction or lack there of, of the British in the show. Yes. Not the most flattering portrait this week, was it? No, it wasn't at all. And and actually, again, this is something that I brought up with James Holland. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the tank guy that just won't be told. 
he just basically fucks everything up, doesn't he? Uh, he's like, but he's like a proper Terry Thomas type who goes, he sort of goes, what does he say? If I can't see the fucker, I can't bloody well shoot him, can <laughs> yeah. I? And I don't know if that really happened or whether that was meant to be a kind of dig at the, the British idea of fair play. It's like, you can't shoot a chap if you can't bally well see him. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not cricket. Um, <laughs> yeah. God, can you imagine if, I mean, I don't know if that character died, but can you imagine if they were your last words? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, exactly. I, I think I'd quite like it, actually. But there's also a bit where, where it, they mention that it's Monty's plan under British command yeah. and everyone just kind of groans. You know, I think they're, they're putting a, making the point that this is a British plan that's about to go to absolute <laughs> shit. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, as it says, as it does say at the end, the British lost 8,000 at Arnhem, so... You know, it's uh, talk about kicking us when we're down. I tell you what, should we go to that interview I did with James Holland? Yes. How do you think Brits come across in Band of Brothers? Because I think we come across as incompetent buffoons, and I don't think that's probably accurate. So I wonder what your feelings are about that. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that, that is that is absolutely one of my bugbears. You know, it's sort of good luck, chaps. And then, <laughs> then there's the guy in the tank says, "Well, I can't see the target. I'm not going to engage." You know, two seconds later, boom, he's gone. I mean, that that is just absolute nonsense. You know, the British Army, like the US Army, were were pretty darn good by 1944. Both Americans and the British have worked out a way of war, which was basically to have a very very long tail, have the point of the spear as as, as few as possible so the idea was use steel not flesh basically use technology global reach modernization industrialization to do lots of hard yards for you so that's why you have huge bomber fleets that's why you have vast numbers of sherman tanks and huge numbers of you know guns and ships and all the rest of it so the long tail what i call big war is incredibly impressive that ability to maintain your fighting force in the field is just second to none i mean there is no one in the world you know the soviet union germans don't even come close. Japanese, not come close to the Allies, Western Allies, in, in, in doing that. And the British are very much leading the way of that because, of course, they've come into the war first. So right from the word go, they've, they've adopted this strategy of still not fresh. The idea is that you limit the number of people that are actually in the firing line to the absolute bare minimum as you possibly can. And broadly speaking, that works incredibly well. So, for example, by 1944, British Second Army, and this is roughly comparable with the, with the United States armies as well, the way you look at movies and TV dramas like Band of Brothers, you would assume that, I don't know, 60% are infantry, 20% of tanks and everything else is sort of, you know, following up behind. Mm. In actual fact, it's 14% infantry, 8% tanks, 43% service corps. Almost 50% of your troops in theatre are supporting other arms. Right. Really interesting because 99% of our focus in movies is infantry and, yeah. and tanks, predominantly infantry whether they be parachute infantry or just ordinary infantry or commandos or SAs or whatever. But, you know, they're an incredibly small proportion of your overall effort. And what the Americans and the British have worked out is that what you need is you, you the, the Germans will always counterattack. And so what you do is you probe forward with your infantry and your armour, you steal the hornet's nest, they then rise up, and at that moment you go wham with vast amounts of artillery, overhead aircraft, you know, in the case of Normandy, offshore naval guns and all the rest of it, and you just hammer them and and the firepower smashing things to smithereens so that your men on the ground are protected is very much the kind of modus operandi whether it be kind of laying waste to cities or whether it be kind of destroying towns of our villages or, or whatever it might be and that's the way they do it and that is an incredibly effective way of doing things by and large it's, it's, it's obviously very destructive but 
in terms of saving lives, it's a very good way of doing it. What you have to remember is that all those infantrymen, you know, most of them are not in the case of the um, paratroopers, they're volunteers, but most infantry and most guys in tanks are conscripts. They don't particularly want to be there. They're there because they've got to, because they've been called up and, and what have you. But they're pretty well trained. I mean, you know, you're talking sort of 11 months, 12 months. You know, most of the troops before D-Day have been training for two years. Yeah. There's not a single German soldier that's being processed at that same time. It's getting remotely that level of training. So they're pretty good. And the logistical support is absolutely second to none. So this idea that all the Brits are buffoons and endlessly stopping for tea is just... <laughs> It's an insult. And I think it goes back to the fact that, you know, in the, in the old, you know, when, you, when you're sort of growing up, I mean, if you're writing a script, for, you know, if you're making a film about, about a historical moment, that's because you've got an interest in history. Mm. So you studied it at school. And when you're an American, American and you're studying at school, what you're learning is the Bunker Hill and the thin red line of mm. American Revolution. And, and it's kind of sort of the Brits are the bad guys. And so they, they just cannot resist temptation to picture the british as people with gray mustaches and swagger stips sort of stopping for tea you know it's a sort of complete caricature it does them a massive disservice because obviously you know it wasn't like that at all but there is there's a responsibility on the british i think to kind of make their own version of it and you know there is no british band of brothers is there there hasn't been a great british war movie for eons and when you when you look at them things like the imitation game and the imitation game is absolute historical tosh you know i put that below u571 in historical inaccuracy really Awful. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, we can get to that because there's something coming up which might make a plot for a good uh, a good British band of brothers, which you can tell me a lot about. But before we get there, Market Garden is presented very much as a British failure. And I know, again, from listening to your podcast, that the reason Market Garden failed is, is both very simple and very complicated. So I wonder if you could give us just a, a sort of a condensed version of what did go wrong. For those who don't know, after the end of the Normandy campaign in, in the kind of third week of August 1944, suddenly there's this huge rush that the Germans are retreating. And the Allied forces, you know, the Americans are sweeping, creeping kind of sort of eastwards across northern France and into the French border with Germany. British and Canadian forces are kind of sweeping northwards through Belgium and, and, and into Holland. The problem you've got as you go into Germany is is that the terrain doesn't favour the invader at all. I mean, there's lots of hills, there's lots of, you know, the Ardennes and all the rest of it. There's also massive rivers, not least the River Rhine, which is incredibly wide. And, of course, there's the West Wall, the Seafried Line, as it's also known, which is the German border defences, which is a sort of network of bunkers and wire and mines and all the rest of it. So how do you get around that? Well, further north, in the northern part of Holland, which actually sort of dips quite into northern Germany, there's the Upper Rhine, which is much narrower there and you don't have the seafried line defenses so if you can get through that you suddenly you've got the you've got through the sort of the back door so to speak into northern germany and such is the momentum of the allies it's worth the push not least because you've got an allied airborne army which to my mind was probably misguided in its creation but nonetheless you've got it there so you've got all paratroopers are volunteers whether they be british canadian polish american whatever so that means that they've got sort of motivation and when you've got motivation you're able to use your initiative better which just means that basically the overall quality of your troops tends to go a lot higher more aggressive you're more gung-ho you're more kind of up for the fight all of which is good so you've got this airborne army and you might as well use it and if you can get into germany quickly without a long attritional ghastly slogging match through the west wall What's not to like? Mm. 
The problem is it doesn't work. And Montgomery says that he was the commander of the 21st Army Group, who is over, although there's Americans involved, he's overall in charge of this particular operation under Eisenhower, who is the supreme allied commander. He says, you know, it's 90% successful. <laughs> and of course, the point is, is that the 10% unsuccessful bit is the crucial bit. Yeah. But in a way, he's also not entirely wrong, because, you know, what, what's amazing about Market Garden is how far it, it goes. And actually, it could have worked, because its failure is misguided elements of planning things not happening when they did but actually it does almost work but it doesn't (laughs) so uh, you know and then the question then follows is had they got into northern germany through the back door would they have been to sustain it would they have been able to support a major thrust would the germans have counterattacked again and kind of pushed them back out again all of which is completely unknowable you know who knows but but you can see in the sort of heady days of kind of early september 1944 when you know, you've got the Guards Armoured Division sort of advancing 300 miles in six days or something. You can see why there is this, let's reinforce success, let's drive forward, let's really be quick. And, and both the Americans and the British do have these exploitative forces, these armoured brigades, armoured divisions rather. They're not just tanks, they're a combination of all arms, motorised all arms units. So motorised infantry, tanks, motorised artillery and anti-tank guns all operating together to sort of surge through and blast everything from them. And the idea about dropping the paratroopers is that they go onto a bridge, hold that bridge, until the kind of main bulk of the armour can sort of catch up and, mm. and relieve them. As I say, it, it just doesn't quite work. But I don't think it's quite as harebrained a scheme as it's kind of often depicted. So, quick update on woman counts. There are quite a few women in the Eindhoven scenes, but they are mostly being shamed as whores. Mm. And then there's a woman in the barn scene, as previously mentioned, but she doesn't actually get to speak. Yeah. So I went off and found out a little bit about those women who were shamed. I mean, obviously peripheral to this, but pretty shocking, and they are shocked Mm. by it. So I did a bit of Googling, discovered that there's almost nothing written about this. Like, it's really kind of undiscussed piece of history, and I can see why. It broke out all across Europe, this just mass mob violence against women that were seen to have collaborated with the Germans. And even now, there's like this element of everybody assumes that they were collaborating in the sense Mm. of collaborating. It happened to prostitutes, and you're like, well, they were working. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And it happened to women who were sexually assaulted by Germans. There's all sorts of reasons. There's like like hundreds of reasons you might end up sleeping with a German during the the Second World War, and only one of them is ideology. There's like a whole screen of other, like fear and coercion and, you know, hunger, (laughs) just all sorts of like things. So, yeah, and it was really vicious, and they all had their head shaved, which like served two purposes. One's to like strip them of their femininity, and the other is is to point out who they are really clearly, so everybody knows who they are. But yeah, it's really shocking, but it's just not discussed at all. No, just, again, thinking of David Nutter and Game of Thrones, it it had that kind of Cersei Lannister walk of shame thing to it, but this was a real thing happening in in Western Europe not that many years ago. It was pretty shocking. Like I say, there are some historians that have written about, um, I heard a chat on the phone with like a feminist historian who's written academic papers about it, and there is a book that's written in French about it, which is like, you know, it's there's nothing you could pick up at Waterstones and read about right. it. There is as well this feeling that quite a lot of it was a distraction. So if you had collaborated with the Germans yourself, 
Like it was yeah. really easy to point out somebody else that had either done it or just like yes. you could get a rumor out. So it had a real witch hunt feel to it as well. <laughs> yeah, there is a sort of passing line about you know the the, the women got away lucky, the men mm. have all been killed. Yeah, basically for collaborating. But you do imagine, as you say, that the men weren't coerced into collaborating in in quotes in quite quite the same way. Yeah, they called it horizontal collaboration. Oh, really? Yeah. That was a thing? Yeah. Yeah. God, how horrific. The the Carnival of Ugly was... I think that must come from a translation of something because it's not particularly yes. elegant an expression, but the Carnival of Ugly was what swept through town when uh, when God. Liberation came. Yeah. One of ABBA, and I don't know which one. One of ABBA, one of the women. Yeah. One of the women in it. I think it's like... It's one of, I think it's the dark-haired one. And yet, uh, oh, Annie Fridge. Yeah. Yeah. Her dad was um, a German officer. Oh, mm. that's funny you say that, because ABBA are about to reform in about 45 minutes. Are they? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they are. As we record this, they've got to do a live stream launch of the... Uh, I think they're coming back as holograms. <laughs> like Tupac. <laughs> yeah, but not not dead. I feel it's more acceptable if people who've just retired from touring decide to do a hologram show rather than the record companies literally resurrecting their corpse like a musical weekend at Bernie's. When you say, and I realise we've gone quite off topic here. <laughs> quite off topic. But, and, and of course, by the time everyone listens to it, they'll probably <laughs> yeah, know the answers. Know. But do you mean that they're going to be like like Andy Serkis with the golf balls on him in their lounge? <laughs> Like dancing, or they're, they're going to recreate like them from the past on tour. Yeah, that's what I mean. I think they're going to they're do it once. They're going to recreate, because they've recorded new music. That's the exciting bit. And then they're going to program these holograms. I guess they just do it the once to perform the new music and the old music. Thank you for the music. <laughs> I don't know where we're going with this. <laughs> So, that's all for this week. Have you had fun? Always, always have fun. Given that the subject matter is quite grim, I think we, we find the fun side to it, don't we? The fun side to war. <laughs> <laughs> Even that is talking about ABBA. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what's coming up next week? Next week, is, it's going to surprise you to know, is episode five, Crossroads. Not that one. It's a different Crossroads. No. And we're going to be talking about, well, quite a lot about Dick Winters because it's his episode. Indeed. And we're halfway through, of course. So at something of a crossroads ourselves, Hannah. <sighs> you can cut that out. I won't. <laughs> You've been listening to What Are You Making Me Watch? which is written, produced and edited by Hannah Dunleavy and Paul Kirkley. Our theme tune, Silver and Gold, is from Audio Hub. You can follow us on Twitter at Make Me Watch Pod, or you can follow Paul where he is at PR Kirkley. The rest of the time, he can be found on the pages of Waitrose Weekend, Classic Pop, and Doctor Who magazine, among many other things. Among several other things. He's also written two books about Doctor Who, what they called, mate. They're called um, Space Helmet for a Cow 1 and Space Helmet for a Cow 2. <laughs> two, two space, two cow. Yeah, two helmets. <laughs> <laughs>
And you can find Hannah on Twitter at ThatDunleavy or in her day job talking about women's rights and a lot more besides at the Standard Issue podcast. Thanks for listening.